Grace and peace to you. My name is Scott Elliott. I am the minister at LaGrange Church of Christ here in beautiful LaGrange, Texas, and I want to welcome you today. Thank you for joining me in this new audio series. Uh, we're entering into a series of lessons entitled Instruction in the Faith. And what this series seeks to do is to address this question of what do we do with new converts or children? What are the things that we want to teach them and pass on to them that are important to the Christian faith? This has been an important question for a long, long time, and I want to begin with a, with a series of questions that we can reflect on to kind of help set the tone for this. And so contemplate on these for just a minute or so. When a person becomes a Christian, what do we do? Do we teach them anything before they become a Christian? And if so, what? What do they need to know after they become a Christian? Where do we begin? You know, these are all questions, and they're questions that Christians have been asking for a long, long time, since the early days of the church. Some of the first questions that were asked um, in the second century and uh, we're, we're in regards to this instruction in the faith and, and what is it that we need to teach people who are becoming Christians. And so instruction in the faith is central to Christianity. Luke writes the Gospel of Luke for this very purpose. If you look at his introductory remarks in Luke chapter 1, notice what he writes in verses 3 and 4. He says, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. And so Luke is writing this gospel to a man named Theophilus, and it's apparent that Theophilus has already been instructed somewhat and Luke is expanding upon this instruction, instructing him even further. It is said, Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord in Acts 18, verse 25. And so the Greek word for instruction that's found in both Luke 1.4 and Acts 18.25 is katecheo. And that may sound somewhat familiar. That's because our English word catechesis is derived from this Greek word. Now, if you're a member of a Church of Christ or part of the Restoration Movement, uh, the word catechesis might not be that familiar to you. We don't typically use that word. And so that's why in this uh, study, I'm not using catechesis, but I'm using the English translation instruction instead. Instruction of the faith was an important part of the early church. Um, especially 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, it begins to decline somewhat in the 5th and 6th centuries because of the introduction of infant baptism. But it's something still relevant for the church today. You know, we all ask ourselves probably from time to time, what do we want our kids to know? Or what do we want our grandkids to know? Or maybe you're working in a church and you're involved in an outreach program or an evangelism program and people are being introduced to the faith and they're becoming Christians. And you may want to know, 
what it is that we want to teach them after they become Christian. Well, when we begin to study this, one of the first questions that comes up is, should instruction take place before salvation or after salvation? And so another way to put this is, when should instruction in the faith take place? And to answer this question, it might be helpful to begin with another question. What must one know to become a Christian? Have you ever thought about that? What must a person know to become a Christian? And I'm going to answer this question with two verses. The first is found in Mark 16, 16. This is the Great Commission found at the end of Mark. And Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And so in this passage, Jesus says, belief in him is what qualifies a person for baptism. That's sort of the prerequisite, that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, then you're a candidate for baptism. Another passage, which again is going to be familiar to people in Churches of Christ, Acts 2.38, or when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, and the people respond, they say, what do we do? And Peter tells them to repent and be baptized. And so in this passage, we learn that a person has to have an acknowledgement of their sinfulness. They have to know that they've done something wrong and they're convicted of that sin. And so as I study this issue, those are the two requirements um, that I find in the New Testament for a person to be a candidate for baptism. That they have to have belief in Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, and they have to have some type of acknowledgement of their sinfulness. They have to know that they're a sinner. And that's it. Now, that's the bare minimum. A person can know a lot more than that and be a candidate for baptism. Often that's what takes place, especially if you think about um, children that are raised going to Sunday school and uh, you know attending worship and those things. Or maybe you have someone who's a seeker and they're you know, really interested, and so they continue to come and learn, and, and they may know a lot more than that, but that's kind of the, the, the bare minimum. And it's evident throughout the book of Acts that, that very little knowledge was required of anyone wanting to become a Christian. You know, people were baptized fairly quickly after they learn about Jesus, and so not much knowledge at all is required. Another question we might ask is, how are disciples made? And for that, to answer this question, we want to turn to the Great Commission in Matthew. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus instructs us to baptize and then to teach. It's interesting here. Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. Okay, well, how are we to make disciples? We, he answers the question for us by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. New Testament scholar R.T. France points out the, the uniqueness of this order in the world of Christianity. In his commentary on Matthew, he writes this, The order in which these two participles occur differs from what has become common practice 
in subsequent Christian history. And that baptism is in many circles administered only after a period of teaching to those who have already learned. It can become in such circles more a graduation ceremony than an initiation. If the order of Matthew's participles is meant to be noticed, he is here presenting a different model, whereby baptism is the point of enrollment into a process of learning which is never complete. The Christian community is a school of learners at various stages of development, rather than divided into the baptized who have arrived and those who are not yet ready. And so France is saying that what we find in Christian history is different from what is presented in the Gospel of Matthew. And if we're to take Jesus seriously, if we're to take the Gospel of Matthew seriously, then the pattern is to first baptize and then to teach. And so instruction is to primarily take place after one has professed faith in Christ and been baptized in the name of Jesus. However, this does not apply to all cases, and we've talked about some of these already. Uh, you know, you might think about children within a congregation who are not yet ready to be baptized, but we continue to instruct them in certain ways. Or maybe someone who comes to your church and they're a seeker and they're not ready to profess um, Christ as Lord and to um, be baptized for the remission of their sins, but you continue to teach, you continue to instruct. You know, when you look at the pattern of instruction in the early church, it followed a threefold pattern. And this is the same pattern that I'm going to follow uh, in the instruction that I'm writing. And so the, the pattern is like this. First, there is the story of Scripture, the story of God. Second, there are moral issues. And so a person needs to learn what is good, what is bad, what do I do, what do I not do, moral issues. And then there is doctrinal or uh, theological issues. And so a person might need to know who is Jesus? Um, what is the Trinity? What happens on the cross? What about atonement? Uh, you know, so there's some theological questions that, that need to be addressed um, when you're instructed in the faith. And so let's begin with the instruction. How this is going to work is I'm going to ask a series of questions and then I'm going to answer each question. And so the first question is this. How do we come to know God and His will? We come to know God through what He has created. We learn this in Romans 1, 19-20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So you can go outside. You can look at the sky. You can look at the trees. You can look at the stars, the, the moon and the sun. You can look at the mountains. You can look at the ocean. You can look at these things and know that there is a God that something doesn't come from nothing. There has to be a creator. 
next we come to know God and his will through the Bible. And so uh, John 20, 30 and 31 states, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So at the very end of the Gospel of John, John tells us why he writes this Gospel. He says, I'm writing this to reveal something about Jesus, to reveal that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that by revealing these things, you might believe and have eternal life. And so we come to know God and his will by reading the Bible, by looking at Scripture. What is the Bible and what is its purpose for us? Well, the Bible is the Word of God. And one of its main purposes is to assist us in our transformation into the image of Christ. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Some translations say that all scripture is inspired, and that's a fine translation, but the literal Greek says that scripture or the Bible is breathed out by God. It comes from God. And the purpose is to make us complete or whole. And that when we become a Christian, we enter into this journey. It's a, a process of sanctification, that we are imperfect beings and we need to be made perfect or complete or whole. And Scripture helps us to do that. We're, we're, we're being transformed into the image of Jesus. How does the Bible work in our lives? The Bible is unlike other books. It is alive and at work in our lives when we read it, hear it read, or meditate on it. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible is not a dead book. When we read the Bible, or when we hear the Bible, something happens to us. The Bible can transform us. The Bible reveals God, and so we can encounter God in the pages of Scripture. The Bible is a unique book. It is living and active, and it, it, it does something in our lives. What is the story of the Bible? Some of these questions, I think that it would be helpful to memorize. Not all of them, but some of them. And this is one of the questions that I think uh, we all need to know. The story of the Bible can be broken down into six movements. And so the Bible is a book that is comprised of many other books. But at the same time, is a book that tells one story, one narrative. And the six movements are this, creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, church, new heavens, and new earth. And so a person who is new to the Christian faith, or a person who is growing up in the Christian faith, a young person, 
it would be helpful for them to know what is the story of the Bible. It's also helpful for us who've been Christians for a long time to know this because someone may come up to us one day and ask us about the Bible. What is the Bible? What is the story of the Bible? And if we've memorized this, then we can tell them. Well, in Genesis 1 and 2, it tells the story of creation. And then Genesis 3 and 11, you have the fall. And then you have the story of Israel in Genesis 12 through Malachi, and then Jesus from in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then from Acts to Revelation 20, you have the church. And then finally in Revelation 21 and 22, the new heavens and new earth. And so what we're going to do now for the next several lessons is we're going to look at these movements or these segments of the story of the Bible. Today we're going to look at creation, then we'll finish there, and then next week we'll pick up by looking at the fall and Israel. And something that's important about these, these movements is that each of them address important questions. And they address questions that everyone is interested in. Not just Christians, not just religious people. And we see that with the first couple questions associated with creation. And so the first one is this. How did we get here? Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did we get here? Well, in the beginning there was God. God is eternal. And God created. God created you and me. God created everything that we see. This is His creation. And that's how we got here. The next question that someone might want to know about is who are we? We are all human beings created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. There are lots of problems in the world today. And some of those problems are associated with identity. Because there are a lot of people who don't know who they are. There's, there's also people wrestling with, with, with all kinds of identity issues. One of them is uh, gender identity. Scripture tells us right here in Genesis 127 that there is male and female. There's not a whole bunch of different genders. And so these people are confused about what's going on in their lives, confused about their gender. You know, if they would turn to Scripture, Scripture would help provide some answers that may help them. Is there a distinction between humans and animals? Yes. Human beings are given a privileged position in God's creation. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We shouldn't mistreat animals. Um, at the same time, we need to understand that animals and human beings are not the same. That God has placed human beings above animals. He's given us a privileged position in his creation. Not only that, we are created in the image of God. And so there is a distinction between humans and animals. How should we view God's creation? 
Genesis 1.31, And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Throughout history, there have been religions and philosophies that have said what is material is bad. But if you go back to the scriptures and you look in the Bible, and what you see is that everything that God creates is good. Now, a person can take God's creation, they can use it for bad. You know, you can misuse God's creation. But what God creates is good, and we need to affirm this. What did God do on the seventh day? On the seventh day, God taught us the importance of rest. Like God, it is essential to recognize the value of both work and rest. Genesis 2-3, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The first thing that God sets aside as holy is this seventh day, the Sabbath. And so there's something important about both work and rest. We shouldn't work ourselves to death. That's not right. Uh, but we also shouldn't rest all the time or be lazy. That's not right either. There, there needs to be a balance there. where We work, but then we take a day off or so to, ref to rest and reflect on what God has done. What was man's first vocation? Well, in paradise or in the Garden of Eden, man's vocation was to tend the garden. Genesis 2.15 The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. We need to understand here that God gave Adam a vocation, a job, a calling, and this was prior to the fall. Work is good. Work is not evil. Um, we need a vocation. We need a calling in our life. Sometimes you'll see when a person gets around you know, retirement age and they retire, and they may have a period for about six, nine months where they're just really confused. And they may go through some depression or something like that. And, and this is because they're trying to figure out what is my vocation, what is my calling. You can't just stop and do nothing if, you know, that may be enjoyable for a while, but eventually it has a negative impact on you. It's going to uh, negatively affect your mental health because we, we, we need something. We need a vocation. We need a calling. And we see that um, in the beginning, God gave Adam a vocation. Why did God create woman? Human beings are relational beings. And so men and women possess different characteristics and qualities. Men and women are not the same. We're, we're, we're different. But we were made for one another. And so Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. We're created to be a relational being. Um, it's okay to spend time alone from time to time. We see Jesus do this in his ministry. He'll occasionally go off and spend some time in solitude and prayer, but he always comes back. And, and we need other people around us. And of course, some of the core relationships we have are family, you know, a spouse, uh, children. 
but then we're also called to live in community uh, in a spiritual sense as well. And so you think about the people of God throughout history. First there was Israel, then the church. These are uh, communities that God has designated for us to live within. What is the goal of marriage? To live in perfect harmony, just as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwell in perfect harmony. Genesis 2.24 Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What's interesting about this passage is the language that's used here. Two, man and woman, become one. And the language is similar to that of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there's one God. And so in our marriages, we are to strive to be perfectly unified so that we can reflect the glory of God to others. Now, we don't always live up to this. In fact, most of the time we often fail. This is a high goal. But it's good to have high goals. And what we see here is that Christian marriage is a witness. We are to be a witness to others around us and a witness to the world by how we live and behave within our marriage. Well, thanks for joining me today. Um, next week, again, we're going to pick up with this story again, and we're going to look at the fall and Israel. Uh, what you're hearing is some curriculum that I've developed myself, and so if you're interested in getting a copy of this curriculum, I'd be happy to send it to you uh, free of charge. And so you can email me at uh, scott, S-C-O-T-T, at lagrangecoc.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.